Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, and you can check out our partner shows at harbingermedianetwork.com, including some new guys that just got announced, which is really exciting. I was already a fan of Green Majority Radio, and now they're in our network. What a treat. That was a little off the rails. I'm Kyla <laughs> Hewson, <laughs> and I'm here with Kristen Pugh. Hello. And today we are talking about deforestation. Yes. Is it as bad as I think it is, or is it worse, or are you? is this like a secret happy story? <laughs> this is not a secret happy story. None of our episodes are secret happy stories. <laughs> <laughs> all right. What do you got for me today? Tell me about it. What do you know about deforestation, first of all? Well, I live in British Columbia, so there was recently a story that's still kind of breaking about how the UK is buying, like, old-growth forests and turning them into lumber to sell in their, like, quote-unquote renewable energy generation because it's, like, running on biofuels. And they're like, oh, it's offcuts of the lumber industry. But then some journalists looked into it. They're like, you're buying way too much lumber for this to be offcuts. And then they, like, followed the supply chain and they're like, this is... This doesn't go where you're saying it goes. So that's the my recent experience with deforestation <laughs> in the news. This is going straight from old growth forests to be burned for fuel in the UK. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So my understanding of deforestation is when we're cutting down trees faster than we can replenish them. Yeah, exactly. That's basically what deforestation is. Trees, they're a renewable resource, but like other renewable resources, you, we have to sort of steward them because if we are cutting down too many trees, suddenly we end up like at the end of the Lorax where <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember what the trees are called in that story, but there are no more. Truffula. There you go. Yes. Yeah, so no more <laughs> truffula trees if we are cutting down forests too much, which we are. So we're going to talk about why do deforestation happens um, and some global approaches to try to deal with the problem. Also, like why trees are good. That's the thing that we want to establish <laughs> a little bit, even though I think intuitively most people already buy that. Um, and then at the end, we'll sort of talk about what some consumer solutions are. Just a quick note that deforestation is, it's a really complicated topic. So we're necessarily going to sort of be pretty surface level on a lot of the issues. Uh, maybe in future episodes, we'll dig more specifically into particular elements of the story, like we'll maybe talk more about old growth forests because I don't have a lot on that today. But, you know, I wanted to get like a wide lens on what deforestation is, what's being done about it, and uh, what you as a consumer can do. I love it. And also you requested a challenge for the first time in a while where... We're going to talk about that. I don't know if you want to slide that in somewhere where it gets like really dark or if you want to save it for the end, but I did do the challenge you requested, so. Yeah, why don't we talk about the challenge now? Okay, I'll go first. So you set a challenge for us to not use paper in a way that we've never not used paper before. I'm sure that you said it more elegantly than that, but basically we were supposed to change paper out in our routine somewhere. And Kristen... Basically, the only place I'm still using paper on the regular is in the bathroom. So <laughs> I went to Home Depot and I bought a bidet. Did you really? <laughs> I really did. I really did. And I brought it home and I'm looking at the instructions and I'm like, this is more complicated than I thought. And it's not that complicated. It's not. It's really not. But I was like, 
it's two steps and I have to touch my toilet. Yeah. And so, I, but I went to do it. And the very first step is you have to take your toilet seat off. And Kristen, my shitty place that I'm renting has glued the toilet seat down. So you cannot <laughs> remove the toilet seat from the actual bowl of the toilet. It can't be done without just wrecking the whole thing. So I went back to Home Depot and I returned the bidet and I got a handheld bidet instead of one of those ones that goes underneath the toilet seat. I was like, all right, this is a little bit scarier, but like I'm committed. This is going to be great. So I go home and I go to set it up and the way that my toilet is like screwed into the plumbing makes it basically impossible. Look, I could have done it, but Every time you want to use the bidet, you have to like bend over behind your toilet and turn the water on and off to the bidet. And I was just, I'm not ready for that. So instead, so I returned that bidet too. And I think I returned both of them to the same person. And (laughs) 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 she did give me a little side eye. And I was like, I didn't use them. So so instead I went to my local waste-free shop and I bought a bunch of cotton rounds. And I've just been using, I've been using reusable toilet paper for the last four days. And how's that been? Fine, actually. I think I'm going to keep with it. It it encourages me to do laundry more often than I do, which is good. (laughs) (laughs) The only thing is that I'm terrified that I'm going to get, I'm going to be like super high one day and I'm going to go to the bathroom. I'm going to use one of my cotton rounds and then like out of habit, I'm going to throw it in the toilet. That's my biggest fear. Oh my gosh. Way to really go beyond your comfort zone. Uh, My (laughs) challenge is going to feel like a real cop-out. But let's bear in mind that I did all the research for this episode. (laughs) So I think people might remember, or maybe they don't, it's been forever. But in the waste-free episode when we did our garbage audit, one of the things I mentioned was that I just go on autopilot a lot of the times and I use paper towel in bathrooms, like after I've washed my hands. And I've just been not doing that, which is much simpler than your whole bidet excursion. But it's been working pretty well so far. (laughs) That's a bold one, too. Like, sometimes you're in there and you're like, "Ah, I could use the blow dryer, but, like, the paper towel's right there. And you know you're only going to use one little square of it. And everyone else uses, like, six. So you're doing better than your neighbors. And it's just so much nicer than using the blow dryer. (laughs) So, like, I feel like that's a bit of a sacrifice, too. Yeah. Plus, like, I don't know. I've been drip drying sometimes because they don't always have the air dryers. <laughs> it's a little bit weird. Bold, bold. bold. <laughs> uh, maybe in future as well. Another thing I'd like to do but didn't have the time for was I write in notebooks a lot. So if any listeners have suggestions on like a an app that I can use for a tablet to write notes, send them my way because I would love to do that. Oh, Kristen, have you used Notion before? I have not. Notion has changed my life. I will send you a video about it later. (laughs) But anyone who's listening who knows Notion, they get it. (laughs) That'll be my post-episode challenge, I guess. All right. Should we get into the meat of the episode? Yeah. So deforestation is basically it's the intentional clearing of forested land. So it's a fairly straightforward concept when you get rid of a forest and replace it with something else. That's deforestation. But deforestation is often talked about in combination with what's called forest degradation. Um, And it is sort of similar to deforestation, but it basically means changes that affect a forest structure or function, but don't decrease its area. So like, let's say you're putting a road in a forest, but you're not like clearing forest land. 
that's forest degradation or like illegal logging would count as forest degradation. And it can really fuck up a forest, uh, but you're not like formally turning that forest into a plantation or something like that. So together, those two concepts are called forest cover loss. And I'm going to talk about that in the podcast. So when you hear that term forest cover loss or forest loss, that just means that combination of deforestation. So getting rid of a forest and replacing it with something else and forest degradation, which is sort of like fucking up a forest in some way. Okay. You know, I didn't actually know that distinction. So thank you for starting with that clarification. Yeah, it's important. I mean, they're all sort of like related concepts, but it's important. Kyla, do you have any sense of when deforestation started? God damn, Kristen. Um, shoot. Like the Bronze Age? I don't know. When when did uh did you just like name an era? <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Well, I I mean, wasn't like Britain kind of going out and stealing land from other places because they didn't have any forests left? So pr- like before colonial like colonialization, unless we're I don't know. Yeah, that's my guess. <laughs> Yeah, so this was something I had never really thought about before, but deforestation, it goes back to the deliberate use of fire. So it's like half a million years old. (laughs) One of the earliest things we've done as a society is clearing forests. Okay, so I feel like that was kind of a trick question and I did pretty well. (laughs) Yeah, Um, but really uh, deforestation, it started to accelerate in about 10,000 BC and onwards. um, And that was when human society started to farm. So one theme that's going to emerge in this episode is that deforestation and agriculture are really intimately linked. Um, And so when you think about deforestation and its causes, you, in a really big way, need to think about like what food you're eating and how it's produced. So over the long history of deforestation, an estimated 40 to 50 percent of Earth's original forest area has been lost. So we've lost half of the forests that we've ever had throughout that time. Before about 1950, most deforestation was happening in temperate zones, so in places like Europe, Russia, China, North America, and Australia, as agriculture was expanding in those regions. Kyla, when you bring up the idea that like the UK has no trees, and so it's going out to other places with trees and cutting down trees there, that's really true. And if you think about colonialism as a story there, it really does help to, to frame deforestation and how it's shifted. So before 1950, it's happening in, you know, Europe, in North America. Um, It's also happening in China and Russia. Then it sort of shifts into more tropical zones after 1950. But just to give you some stats on that first wave of deforestation, um, in North America, about half of the forested land in, in the eastern part of the continent was cut down between the 1600s and the 1870s for timber and agriculture. So it wasn't long after Western settlers arrived that deforestation started to really pick up in North America. And that's not to say that like the indigenous cultures that were in the Americas before settlers got there weren't like ever cutting down trees. They definitely did modify their environments, but deforestation got a lot more drastic after Western settlers arrived. Uh, So forests actually used to cover about 80% of Western Europe, and now it's only 34%. And in China, this is a pretty wild stat to me, um, but only about 20% of the forests that used to exist in China still survive today. Wow. So for a lot of this episode, we're going to talk about deforestation that's happening today in tropical zones. But I think it's really important before we get into that just to really drive home how much 
That's just the recent wave of deforestation, but it's actually not. Like most deforestation, as much as nine-tenths of it, happened before 1950, and it's mostly happening in other parts of the world where we sort of don't talk about deforestation so much. So we have lost a lot of forest all over the world, and even though places like Brazil are where most of the deforestation is happening today, there's a lot of historical deforestation that we could be reversing all over the world. So let's talk about deforestation today. The annual rate of deforestation has decreased um, from about 0.18% in the 1990s to an average of 0.08% in 2010 to 2015. Those are a lot of numbers. They seem like really small numbers, but if you think about it, like that's every year global forest coverage, right? It doesn't take very long for even small percentages like that to add up to a large amount of forest lost. One thing that's really unfortunate about that is that deforestation had been slowing down since the 1990s, and that was in part due to activism that brought a lot of attention to the issue. But since 2015, that rate is actually increasing again, and it's due to some policy changes as well as uh, climate change causing problems for forest loss. So just to give you an example, in 2016, uh, the rate of deforestation jumped up 51% higher, and that was largely due to forest fires. Kyla, if you had to guess, um, how much of the Earth's land area do you think is covered by forests? <laughs> this is one of those questions where I feel like I should know the answer, but I might be wildly wrong if I like take a stab in the dark, which I will. But to be clear, I once had an argument with somebody because I was sure that Hawaii was in the Atlantic Ocean and I wouldn't hear otherwise. This was a very embarrassing argument for me. Many years ago, thank you very much. Um, but then I, I did have another argument with somebody as well uh, where I was like, oh, the Marianas Trench has got to be like 500 kilometers deep. And my friend was like, no, it's like eight kilometers deep. And I was like, there's no way I'm that wrong. So just keep that in mind when, um, when I answer your question, Kristen, which is I'm going to say maybe 30% of the world is covered in forest. Wow, you did not need to hedge that much because you're actually almost exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, forests cover about 31% of the Earth's land area, which is extremely close to your guess. But they used to cover about 50% of the planet, so that's a little bit of a bummer. I mean, that's only a 20% change. That doesn't seem like so much. I don't know. That's like 20% of the whole planet. <laughs> I guess the lot. planet is really big. <laughs> All right, you got me. Okay, you did so well with that number. I'm going to make you guess another number. <laughs> uh, if you had to guess, how many trees do you think are cut down every day? A hundred thousand. No, 14 million. Okay, well, I was a little bit, <laughs> a little bit further off on that one. That's too many, Kristen. That's so many trees. Yeah, it's pretty wild. What are they used for? Lots of stuff. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Wood pellets for biomass. They're used to make furniture, you know, paper products. Also, sometimes trees are just felled to convert land for other things. So we're going to talk oh, more about yeah. those kinds of things. But yeah, we've lost a lot of forest. Um, and deforestation today, as I had mentioned, it's largely happening in tropical rainforests. So depending on how you measure it and depending on the estimates you look at, it's either about two-thirds is happening in tropical rainforests right now or up to 96% um, of permanent forest removal by humans is happening in tropical rainforests right now. 
which is, it's especially bad because those are particularly good areas for biodiversity. And a lot of them are really important carbon sinks, which are things we're going to talk about a little bit later. But as I had mentioned, um, that was something that accelerated after 1950. Um, it did peak around the end of the century, but now it's sort of picking up again in, you know, the lovely climate era that we're in. According to um, the Global Forest Watch, we lose about 10 to 11 million hectares of tree cover every year. So just to give you a sense of the scope of that, because I really have no concept of what a hectare is, <laughs> that's an area roughly the size of Portugal. So we're, we're losing one Portugal of trees every year. Wow. That's a really great way to visualize it. That's a lot of trees. I mean, I mean obviously, the, the moral of the story is we, we got to stop cutting down as many trees as we do. But in theory, if we did not do that, how long before the planet was just bald? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> so let's take that 2010 to 2015 average of 0.08% per year and figure out how long that takes to, <laughs> to get to zero. Actually, I don't think that would work because um, there'd be more. It's not linear. So uh, no, I, I can't tell you that, Kyla. <laughs> well, one of our listeners will definitely be able to do the math on that for me. And you can just you can just send us that message because the people want to know. Yeah, someone calculate that for us. Another thing, it's not just like the magnitude of forest cover that's lost. It's also how much that contributes in carbon dioxide emissions. That one Portugal of tree cover that we lost also resulted in 2.5 gigatons of carbon emissions, which to give you yet another uh, sort of way to wrap your brain around that, it's equivalent to the annual fossil fuel emissions of India. Whoa. We, we gained one India of carbon emissions due to deforestation. Oh my God. <laughs> That's a lot. Like India, I don't think is the highest contributor to carbon emissions, but they're not nothing. It's a big country. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I had said that deforestation is mostly happening in the tropics. Uh, the World Wildlife Fund sort of narrows that down a little bit more, and they've identified 24 what's called deforestation fronts. Those are basically areas that have lost more than 10% of their forested area since 2004. There are sort of three er areas of the planet where that's happening. One is Latin America, one is Sub-Saharan Africa, and the last one is Southeast Asia and Oceania. Kyla, can you guess the country where there's the most deforestation? Brazil? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't God. sound so excited. That's terrible. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Oh, Brazil, that is the worst thing to win at. The five countries that lost the largest forest area in 2021 were Brazil, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Bolivia, Indonesia, and Peru. The DRC, really? That's interesting to me. I wonder if that has anything to do with, like, minerals. <laughs> yeah, I think it has to do with mining. Um, I think it has to do probably with the expansion of agriculture and also, like, governance issues there, because the Democratic Republic of the Congo is a bit of a failed state. It's very easy for illegal activity to happen, which is often when you get deforestation and forest degradation. But Brazil was by far the country that lost the most forest area in 2021. So they lost 1.5 million hectares, and that's compared to half a million hectares in the Democratic Republic of the Congo in that year. So three times as much, and the DR Congo was the second. And this is due to both rising human-caused deforestation since 2015, uh, because Jair Bolsonaro... <laughs> 
um, and also because of growing forest fires in the Amazon. So in the Amazon, around 17% of the forest has been lost in the last 50 years, and that's largely due to land conversion for cattle ranching, sort of the biggest cause. The Amazon is a big area of concern for activists that are concerned about deforestation, in part due to particularities to the Amazon that make it like a really good carbon sink and a really good source of biodiversity. The Amazon may actually be close to a tipping point, uh, which we could reach a point of no return where there's just cascading effects and we lose the rainforest. So it really is important to start acting to stop deforestation immediately on like quite quick timelines. And there's a coalition of indigenous organizations in the Amazon region that have called for a protection of 80% of the Amazon by 2025. And that's one proposal for how to deal with this emergency that we're really at with the Amazon. You want to talk about deforestation in Canada for a little bit? Let's do it. Overall, our deforestation rate is really low. It's among the lowest in the world. Uh, but deforestation is something that's still happening here. That's an important thing to keep note of because we have a large landmass and therefore huge amount of forest cover. I'm not sure whether Russia or Canada has the most forest. I'm guessing it's Russia, but we are definitely up there in contention for most forests. <laughs> so keeping deforestation low, very important. And the boreal forest, um, it accounts for 75% of forested area in Canada. So that's most of the forests that we have. It's actually the world's largest intact forest. So fun fact there. Oh. Yeah. So deforestation, it's happening in Canada, but not as quickly as some other places. However, uh, we are cutting down some old growth forests. I'm sure you'll have opinions on this section. <laughs> <sighs> so old growth forests, uh, they're basically forests that contain trees that are old. This is like defined differently in different places, but the BC government defines an old growth forest as a forest with trees that are more than 140 years old. But it's, it's important to note that trees can actually like live for much longer than 100 years. The oldest living tree, which is a pine known as Methuselah, is almost 5,000 years old. And actually, there's like a big fight right now because um, there's this Patagonian cypress in Chile that might be older, so... <laughs> I'm not picking sides on that one. They're both old trees. So old growth forests are good. Uh, <laughs> they're good for a few reasons. Uh, one is that they're often particularly rich in biodiversity. They have really dense canopies. Uh, there's thick bark on the trees. They've got extensive root systems. And because there are like bigger, older trees, there's more space between trees. And all of that is really good to prevent disasters like wildfires, landslides, and flooding as well as to protect water sources. So, you know, like, who needs those things? <laughs> <laughs> and as well, old-growth trees are culturally significant for Indigenous communities. So in addition to these trees, like, literally saving us from wildfires and landslides, they're also, like, a culturally important thing to preserve. On the other hand, capitalism really loves old-growth trees because they're high in value. They can be used for high-end products like fine furniture and musical instruments uh, because they're really big. And uh, the Sierra Club actually found that between 2005 and 2017, 3.6 million hectares were clear-cut in BC, um, including 1.9 million hectares of old-growth forests. So it's not as though we're really protecting old-growth forests. If you 
want to get involved with protecting old growth forests in Canada, Stand Out Earth is a really good organization that you can help out with. All right, should we talk about why deforestation is bad? <laughs> yeah, so far, Kristen, my impression is that this is great for the economy and everybody should just be excited about it and stop talking about it, right? Yeah, it's good for jobs. End of podcast. No. <laughs> <laughs> So trees are good for a lot of reasons. The first one is that we cannot live without them. So forests are... <laughs> some, let's go into some grade four science and talk about photosynthesis. And <laughs> yeah, We will literally all die without trees. Uh, people seem to forget that sometimes. Honestly, Kristen, I did forget it until you said it. I was like, oh, yeah, they literally make oxygen and our atmosphere would disappear without them. <laughs> yep. So, well, we'll take that point off. You know, oxygen, great. Uh, rainforests are especially important. So over 40% of the world's oxygen is produced from rainforests. In addition to allowing us to breathe, forests also clear the air and the water. Um, so they filter particulates. So that makes uh, for better breathing and water we can drink. And they're also a source of many medicines. And they also can moderate the spread of insect and animal-borne disease. So they're also like a, a safeguard against pandemics, which is another thing that we should maybe not take for granted about <laughs> forests. One stat that I found is that heavily deforested areas can actually see a 300-fold increase in the risk of malaria infection compared to areas that have forests that are intact. That's not insignificant. Even if your rate was like, one person a year, a 300 fold, in, like that increases it to 300 people a year, right? Like I'm not doing the math wrong there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So first we need them to live. That's one reason forests are good. Forests are really important carbon sinks. Um, they sequester more carbon than all of the earth's exploitable oil, gas, and coal, which I think is a fun fact. Uh, we obviously want to stop burning <laughs> fossil fuels, but Forests are already sort of counteracting a little bit of that. So can, you can imagine like getting rid of forests. That's that's a carbon bomb that's actually bigger than oil and gas expansion if you got rid of all the forests today. It's so interesting that at the same time that we're consuming unsustainable levels of fossil fuels, we are also burning down unsustainable amounts of trees. And it's just like, like one wouldn't be bad enough on its own. We had to do them both at the same time. Yeah, they're really important carbon sinks. Um, and when trees and other vegetation are burned, it releases greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So that is, that is why wildfires are bad and why burning trees are bad. But it's not just that they sequester carbon. It's also that the physical structure of forests can affect the climate um, in other ways. So forests absorb energy from the sun, and they use that energy to move vast quantities of water from the soil back into the atmosphere in a process that's called evapotranspiration. Um, and that actually helps to cool the surface temperature, um, both locally and also globally. Uh, and there are also other physical attributes of forests that have a stabilizing effect on our climate. So for complicated scientific reasons, forests actually affect rainfall and can reduce the severity of heat waves. And if you put all of that together, the combined net effect of forests um, is actually a cooling of the planet by 0.5 degrees Celsius. So if you think about how we're at 1.2 degrees of global warming right now, 
Um, if you got rid of forests, you'd have to add another 0.5 degrees to that immediately, right? Because they're they're performing this really important cooling function. And obviously that works on scales as well. So the more deforestation we have, the less cooling effect you get from forests. But if we reforested, we'd actually we'd get more of a cooling effect. Uh, I really want to get more trees into cities, especially into like the the zones where the heat gets the worst, you know, because it's always the areas of town that have the least amount of trees. And it's just like, just plant trees, just plant so many trees, have them all hanging, have them hanging off of buildings, have them on the roofs of buildings, have them along the roads <laughs> if you haven't gotten rid of your roads yet, you know? Yeah, trees. So I mentioned all of the reasons that forests are good for mitigating climate change and uh, also stabilizing our climate. The Flip side of that is that deforestation is actually responsible for at least 10% of all greenhouse gas emissions. And if you include forest degradation, uh, so fucking up the forest, uh, that figure actually jumps to 15%. So it's a pretty significant contributor to climate change that we could address by planting more trees and cutting down fewer trees. Deforestation can also lead to warmer, drier local climates, increases in droughts and wildfires, and can decrease rainfall. And all of that is bad. <laughs> okay, reason three to like forests. Forests preserve biodiversity. The vast majority of Earth's land animals and plants live in forests, about 80%. And uh, Greenpeace's Living Planet report recently found that there's actually been a 69% loss of wildlife over the last 50 years. So since 1970, we've lost almost 70% of wildlife. What? Yeah. That's 50 years? 52 years? I knew it was bad, Kristen, but that that's, that's staggering. staggering. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, we should also think about like this stat is partially also about the pillaging of the oceans oh, that's been happening. Yeah. <laughs> but a large portion of it is coming from land as well, and forests are a really key piece of why biodiversity has gone down on land. Instinctively, I know that biodiversity has gone down a lot, but I never would have guessed by that high of a percentage. Yeah. Why isn't everybody talking about this? You know, like, I shouldn't be just realizing that for the first time. And yet, like, here's the thing, right? I'm very plugged into the issues, but anytime somebody talks about the issues, they already, they talk about it as though, like, you already know all of the statistics. And, like, I don't. So everyone's just like, oh, we, we're experiencing tremendous biodiversity loss. And it's like, what does that even mean? You say 70% to me and I'm like, oh, shit, that is tremendous. Yeah, tremendous is the right word for it, for sure. One thing I want to highlight about Greenpeace's Living Planet report is they're finding on two things. They found that land use change currently is the biggest threat to nature um, so that's important because deforestation is all about land use change. But secondly, they found that in coming decades, climate change is likely to overtake it. So <laughs> that's not great. Well, I mean, that's a tipping point, right? That's what we're talking about when we say, like, <laughs> we're, it's too late. You know, we've gone too far because now even if we stopped doing everything we were doing, it's all just going to carry on in this weird cyclone that we've started. Yes. All right. I think we're at reason number four. Reason number four to like forests. Forests protect against erosion. They make the soil um, less fragile, basically. And when you get rid of forests, the soil becomes more fragile. They basically provide an anchor for fertile soil because they've got like root systems and things like that. Um, and when they're removed, the soil can actually erode and wash into water systems. 
So many of the crops that are grown in place of forests, like coffee, cotton, palm oil, soybeans, and wheat, they can actually make that soil erosion problem even worse. So it's estimated that one-third of the world's arable land has been lost through soil erosion since 1960. Look, it's no 70%, but that's still a pretty big amount. <laughs> yeah, and in less time, right? No, uh, more, time, more time, but, but still. Similar but still. time frames, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, reason five, the final reason to like forests. The final reason that I'll mention to like forests, I'm sure there are many others, but people live and work in forests and they rely on them for food. So we really want to make sure that we preserve them. Forests are home to about 300 million people around the world, and healthy forests support the livelihoods of an estimated 1.6 billion globally. Um, and 1 billion of those are among the world's poorest. So preserving forests is really a way of promoting global equity and um, addressing extreme poverty. In addition to that, deforestation could actually put the food security of billions of people at risk. And that's because deforestation can make areas drier and rain-fed agriculture rather than irrigated agriculture actually makes up about 60% of all food produced. So if you deforest and then it rains less, that's really fucking with the food security of people in deforested areas. Should we talk about how deforestation works? Yes, please. All right. This was something that I found interesting from my research because I hadn't really thought about it before. But deforestation tends to happen in sequences. The first step is typically you get roads constructed into forests, and that's usually associated with the expansion of logging or mining. You may not be intending to set up a logging area. You may be trying to create a mine somewhere, but in order to, to mine whatever you want to take out of the ground, you've got to go into a forest, and that means you have to build roads. Um, you might need to build like a processing plant nearby. So you're cutting down trees for that. But at the same time, that makes the forest more fragmented, and it also makes it easier for people to access the forest. Using that reach, you can have deforestation that's linked to commercial agriculture or smallholder agriculture or illegal logging and things like that. So it starts with roads and it ends with clear cutting, basically. <laughs> we can talk about direct and also indirect drivers of forest cover loss. The direct drivers are factors that are proximate, right? Like they have a direct physical or behavioral impact on forests that leads to degradation or um, deforestation. And the four major direct drivers are agriculture, um, including timber plantations, extractive industries, infrastructure, and then other factors like wildfires. Then you have sort of a wider suite of indirect or underlying factors, and those are the things that influence the direct factors. So those are things like demographic transitions. Oftentimes when you have a population that is urbanizing, you end up with more deforestation because you have to build infrastructure like dams and roads and things like that in order to service that city. There are some technological ones if you have technology that makes it easier to cut down trees. That can drive deforestation. Uh, then there's sort of political, economic, um, and environmental factors, right? So we'll talk a little bit about what these different drivers are. But we're going to start with the direct ones, and we're going to start with the biggest one, which is agriculture. 
The vast majority of deforestation, almost 80%, occurs to convert land for agriculture or to obtain wood products. It's typically commercial agriculture that leads to deforestation, but that is regionally specific. And in Africa, subsistence agriculture is actually the leading cause of deforestation. So it can be a little bit more complicated, right? Because you're balancing agriculture is a good way of getting stable food sources for people, but we could be doing it more efficiently. So commercial agriculture is a little bit easier to target than subsistence agriculture, you know? Here's the thing, because if anyone's listening to this show who, because I know that this is still a really popular idea, like there's too many people on the planet and, you know, this could be, this could be used as an example of that. Well, uh, we need to feed all these people. So we have to keep chopping down the forests. And then it's just like this circle. And it's like, ah, yeah, but if we didn't waste 30% of the food that we created, we wouldn't need to cut down trees constantly because ah, ah. <laughs> yeah. it breaks my brain. And also not to spoil a little bit later in the episode, but it's meat. It's meat eating. That is what's causing it. Beef and soy production are the top drivers of agricultural deforestation. And uh, 75% of soy production is livestock feed. So there's a pretty direct link. We'll talk a little bit more about it later. In addition to just like the volume of agriculture, uh, there's a specific type of agriculture that is harmful for forests, especially. Um, and that's slash and burn agriculture. So this is basically a method of cultivation where you burn and clear trees for planting. And the burning helps because the ash provides fertilization and it also clears weeds. So it makes it really easy to plant stuff right away. But the problem is that after several years, like you don't get benefits from that anymore. So people using slash and burn agriculture sort of have to like move on to the next plot. This is something that was used in some traditional indigenous practices, but in those practices, they would explicitly leave burnt areas fallow, um, and they would eventually be reverted into a secondary forest. And in today, cleared areas are often just left in a deforested state. So slash and burn agriculture, you'll often hear about that when you're talking about deforestation in a, like a Latin American context. Um, it's a practice that's pretty harmful for forests. All right, second biggest driver of deforestation is extractive activities. So that's logging and also mining. Mining, as I'd mentioned, it requires land conversion not only for the mines themselves, but also for the infrastructure like roads, rail lines, and power stations. And uh, a recent Standot Earth report highlighted the rise of logging in Canada, as we've mentioned at the beginning, to make wood pellets for biomass facilities that are largely exported to the UK. Although I think they're planning a plant in Germany as well to address uh, the gas issues vis-a-vis -vis Russia. So it's, a, it's a, a rising problem in Canadian forests specifically. After extractive industries, the next biggest cause of deforestation is infrastructure expansion. So that, that's something that we could do more responsibly, but you probably do need infrastructure expansion to a certain degree in order to sort of power communities, right? Um, particularly, hydroelectric power plants are, are oftentimes a big catalyst for discussion about deforestation because a lot of times they do involve clearing quite a few trees. Kristen, this is a little off topic, but if I wanted to build a cabin in the woods, in a place where there were no roads, would I have to get a license from the government for that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like if I just walked into the forest in BC, and there's a lot of it, 
I could walk, I could, in theory, walk far enough until I'm at a plot of land that nobody technically owns. Can I just build a house there? No. <laughs> I think knows <laughs> the answer. Uh, 94% of Canada's forests are publicly owned, so you would have to follow whatever the public rules are about forest use. So maybe ask Parks Canada about that. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, you may not be able to build a house. That might be one of the rules. <laughs> the Greenpeace report that had looked at different deforestation fronts, they actually broke down what the top regional drivers of deforestation were. So I just want to, I think it's helpful to talk about that a little bit. In Latin America, the top two are cattle ranching and soy production. But it's different in Southeast Asia. There, it's more about timber plantations and palm oil which you will recognize from an episode we recently re-released. And then Africa, as I had mentioned before, it is more to do with subsistence agriculture. That's the biggest driver of forest loss, although commercial agriculture is expanding. And a new trend is that there's been a rise of smallholders that are growing commodity crops like cacao and maize. And so those can be big drivers as well in particular areas. In addition to those causes of deforestation, there's also illegal logging and fires that often cause forest degradation. So they, they don't convert the land to something else, but they do fuck up the forest pretty badly. And that can make them more vulnerable to deforestation over time. You want to talk about some indirect drivers? Yeah. I had mentioned how cities can sometimes impact forest loss. Population growth is another one that we talked about already. Um, in addition to that, uh, rising global food demand and changing dietary preferences is a big reason that deforestation is growing. So, of course, population growth, it leads to a, a greater overall demand for food. Um, but that wouldn't necessarily be a problem depending on how we fed ourselves. So one of the biggest issues is that there's been a dietary shift around the world to eat more meat. And that's driving land conversion because Animal agriculture is super land inefficient. It's also really emissions inefficient and all other kinds of inefficient, but in particular for deforestation, it's land inefficient. Uh, animal products have actually dominated agricultural land use change for the last 50 years. So this isn't something that's super new, but it is still the biggest problem for deforestation. Since the 1960s, this was staggering to me. Global per capita meat consumption has doubled. So we're eating twice as much meat as we used to in the 1960s around the world. Just to contextualize for people, meat production actually requires about five times more land to produce um, if you're like looking at the same nutritional value as plant-based equivalents. Um, and those requirements can actually even increase more for feedlots. This is something that was really debated, whether feedlots versus like grazed um, animals require more land. But one idea in favor of grazing being more land efficient is that you actually don't need to reseed, right? If you're feeding cows grass, the grass regrows naturally. Um, and also like if you're feeding cows soy that's coming from slash and burn agriculture, like it's not just the plot they're on today because the farmer that's that's growing that is going to have to shift uh crops in like a few years, right? Because the, the soil is sort of run out of nutrients and weeds are coming back. So I don't know, it's sort of up for debate, which is more land inefficient, but either way, animal agriculture is five times more inefficient than plant-based eating. 
And just to give you a little bit more context, uh, when, when you include feed crops, livestock production accounts for 70% of agricultural land. So it is the vast majority. But it's not just agriculture. Agriculture is like the leading cause. Uh, there are also other direct causes. But even if we started eating less meat tomorrow, there are still a lot of issues. One problem that often leads to forest degradation and deforestation is weak governance and corruption. This is, this is the case in a few different ways. One of the big ones is just that if you have really weak land rights policies um, and policies that favor commercial activity, um, that can lead to land contestation and like conflict over land that actually encroaches on communities in indigenous territory. And that's one way that deforestation happens. I think we had talked about this in the palm oil episode, but that's like one of the big debates around that one, that palm oil plantations are moving communities off of their land um, and taking away what should be sort of like traditional land rights or land rights based on occupancy. But there's just because governance is weak, it's pretty easy for plantations to sort of just assert themselves. So one way you could actually protect the forest is by strengthening local and indigenous land rights. At the same time, like another way that weak governance and corruption makes a difference for deforestation, there's a lot of sort of informal illegal economies that take place in frontier areas, right? So places where maybe roads have just come in for the first time, you don't have a lot of government presence. Um, so that can be a huge source of forest loss as well. So that's primarily logging, but there's also agricultural activities like cash crop production that can happen there. And then as well, like a lot of developing economies have really clung on to cash crops as a way that you can get rural development. And there are lots of reasons that that's like a good thing. It can definitely be a way to get more money in the pockets of the community. But on the other hand, when you focus on commodity crops like soy, palm oil, and cocoa, that can lead to land conversion for plantations as well as forest loss that's linked to infrastructure. So that can be another indirect driver of deforestation. Really, the thing to take away from this, I think, is that deforestation is complicated and it's about the ways in which humans interact with the land around us and what we use land for, but that the food we eat is the primary source of deforestation. Should we talk a little bit about policies to stop deforestation? Yeah. So there are two main approaches to policies that address deforestation. The first one is responses that are area-based. So those responses aim to conserve forest landscapes or to avoid unsustainable forest use by basically defining the extent and condition of land that should be dedicated to specific uses. So, um, or like land regimes or management systems. So that's all about like protecting the land area and deciding you can log in this area, but not this area. You can log in this way in this area. Um, you know, you can have a farm here, but not here, things like that. The second approach is commodity or sector specific. And so that relies mostly on the capacity to enforce specific economic activities, as well as the uptake and mainstreaming of sustainability practices in supply chains. Um, so that would be around specific commodity crops or sectors, right? So 
Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil is an example of an approach that focuses on a sector rather than an area. There are lots of really complicated deforestation policies. There's certainly a lot that's being done, but the World Wildlife Fund has identified six uh, that I think can give us a flavor of the kinds of things that are happening. So the first type of deforestation policy is securing the rights of Indigenous peoples and local communities. That's giving land rights, what I've been talking about before. One thing that I I just want to add on this one is that they've research has found that Indigenous communities are actually very effective stewards of biodiversity. There's been research in Canada, Brazil, and Australia that has found biodiversity in Indigenous territories has been equal or has even surpassed the biodiversity that's in formally protected areas. So it stacks up just as well or even better than just establishing a protected area in law to actually hand over the forests to Indigenous communities that have been living there since time immemorial, right? This is going to be a really effective way to stop deforestation. And it really points to why legally recognizing the rights of Indigenous peoples is a solution to deforestation. But there are other policies as well. Uh, One thing you can do is um, you can secure conservation of biodiversity-rich forest areas, so you can establish protected areas and things like that. Um, You can also work to ensure the legality of production and trade. As I'd mentioned, weak governance and corruption is a big cause of deforestation. So establishing better governance to make sure people aren't illegally logging is one approach to addressing deforestation. Uh, You can also enhance the sustainability of supply chains. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. Uh, You can also maintain the provisioning of environmental services. That basically means pricing in the benefits that we get from the environment around us. There's, you know, a debate to be had about the extent to which we want to price the environment. I'm sure Robbie would yell at us right now for even thinking about it, but um, (laughs) it's one popular way. Look, at this point, I'll take anything that works. (laughs) Yeah. And then the last one that they've got is mainstreaming responsible finance. Um, And that's something we talked about in the banking episode, but it's basically the idea that you don't want your finance to go to things that are harmful. There are lots of different ways to deal with that. So go to our banking episode if you want to hear more about how responsible finance works. There are also a few global initiatives that I want to mention in addition to those like six approaches. So at the last uh, UN Framework uh, Convention on Climate Change Conference of the Parties, or COP26 in Glasgow, Uh, More than 100 nations pledge to end and reverse deforestation by 2030. We will see if that happens, but that was a big commitment and one of sort of few successes that happened in COP26. Some places have also enacted a right to a healthy environment. Uh, France is one of those places, and that can help to safeguard the forests. And then there's something called Red Plus. Have you ever heard of that, Kyla? No. It's reducing emissions from deforestation and degradation. That is what RED stands for. But basically, it's a family of policies that provide financial incentives to maintain and increase forest cover. So it's a way to pay individual actors and also governments not to exploit their forests. That's basically the idea, which again gets into like, (laughs) you know, how much do we want to price everything in Uh, that really reinforces a capitalist approach? You can disagree with that for sure, but it is something that has been shown to have some success. And then there's this notion of sustainable forest management. Um, So this is the idea that 
There should be rules around how forests are managed uh, so that stewardship is ingrained in it um, and so that you can sort of have some logging activities and things like that, but you're still maintaining the biodiversity, productivity, and regeneration capacity of the forests. And sustainable forest management, it also means things like using lower impact methods to harvest timber. So rather than just bulldozing, you're using methods that are less harmful to the ecosystem around. So there are lots of different solutions. It really depends on what the cause of deforestation is in the area, um, which, which tools should be applied. And really, it's about using as many of these tools as we can to address as many causes as possible and doing that as fast as we can. At this point, you might be wondering, what can we do as consumers? <laughs> Kyla, any suggestions before I go into my list? I'm guessing there's a few that you could, you could take so I don't have to say them. <laughs> Switch out your beef burgers for bean burgers. <laughs> yeah. The first thing we can do as consumers is just to reduce meat consumption. That doesn't mean you have to go vegan tomorrow, but just think about it a little bit. Like every time you, you eat meat, somebody has to grow a, a whole ass animal for it, right? <laughs> like, um, and that means producing a lot of food that they're going to eat over their lifetimes, which takes a lot of land. It means you have to clear a lot of forests. Think about that and maybe reduce your meat consumption a little bit. Also, uh, be aware of the commodity crops that could be driving deforestation in specific regions and look for sustainable uh, production for those. We uh, recently re released an episode on palm oil. You can use the RSPO as an example um, of a sustainability standard for that one. Uh, so look for that on products that might contain palm oil. And if you don't know what palm oil is or what it's in, go back to our episode where we talk about that. Uh, we also have episodes on coffee and chocolate. Those are other examples of, of cash crops where you might want to make sure that the coffee or chocolate that you're buying is not contributing to deforestation. So you can go back to our episodes on those to hear how. Um, and then as well, um, while agriculture is the leading cause of deforestation, like paper products are still a significant contributor. <laughs> it still matters how much paper and wood products you're using. So you can start by reducing unnecessary use of paper products. Um, so one example would be switching to e-billing. If you're really intense like Kyla, maybe you get a bidet. Maybe you're more successful than Kyla was <laughs> installing the bidet. <laughs> you know, wood products are a little bit more complicated since they generally replace other materials that may be less sustainable. So maybe we'll have to do an episode on buildings. But definitely with paper, there are lots of ways that you don't have to use paper in your lives. And I'm including myself in that, looking at all my notebooks and books. Like maybe I should get an e-reader and stop collecting books. We can also recycle and compost. Uh, so for the paper that you do need to use, you can reduce that impact by recycling it or when it's not possible to do so by composting it. Recycling is always better than composting if the thing will actually get recycled. And the good news is in contrast to plastic, most paper and cardboard actually does get recycled. It's about 68% in the US according to the EPA. But do please remember to compost any paper that has been soiled. So things like pizza boxes that have grease on them or things that have, um, you know, if you've gotten, if you've spilled on it or something like that, you've got to compost that paper. You can't put it in the recycling bin because it could contaminate the rest of the bin and it won't be accepted. 
You should also be careful for the same reason to empty your containers of liquids and food. So if you're in a system that doesn't separate plastics from paper, make sure that your containers aren't contaminating your paper. Otherwise, that could mean that it doesn't get recycled. And the plastic's not usually getting recycled anyway, so it really shouldn't contaminate the paper. A couple of things that I learned that I didn't know is that crumpled paper is less likely to be recycled, as is shredded paper, um, as they can get in the way of machines. So if you have to shred for work, I don't know what the way around that is. Um, it just may not be accepted. But, you know, you can not crumple paper as much, I suppose. Uh, one, one tool that I found specifically for toilet paper, if you're not quite ready, like Kyla is, to go to those cotton rounds, you can use the, the Natural Resource Defense Council's Issue with Tissue score, scorecard, which is fun. Um, and according to that scorecard, the best brands are Green Forest and Who Grips a Crap, um, specifically their 100% recycled paper, which is great news for me because that's already what I use, so yay. And uh, Standout Earth actually has called for a boycott of toilet paper uh, made by Procter & Gamble because of their reliance on virgin wood. So if that's something that you think you might get on board with, you can check out their website, um, or you could also just Google Procter & Gamble toilet paper to see what brands they produce. And then when you do buy paper products, uh, look for options that are two things. One, made using a high percentage of recycled content. And then secondly, using certified sustainable forest management practice, which uh, brings us to eco-labels. <laughs> it's kind of fun, funny that we're just getting to talking about sustainable forest eco-labels now, because one of the eco-labels we're about to talk about is actually sort of like the starting point for a whole bunch of the other big eco-labels that exist today. A lot of them are based on the structure of the Forest Stewardship Council. So even though we're talking about this like 90-something episodes in, it's really sort of like the cornerstone <laughs> of the eco-label movement which is kind of fun. So forest certifications was something that was introduced in the late 1990s, but it's still something that changes all the time. There are three elements that you want to think about when you're thinking about forest certification labels. They're like the three essential elements. The first thing is there needs to be some kind of certification. So it's the evaluation of how the forest is managed against a set of standards. So each uh, label is going to have different standards. Um, and then that can be certified in different ways. Uh, Third-party certification is the best because it is the most distance from the producer, right? It's not perfect either. Auditors um, sometimes are a little bit chummy with, uh, with companies, but it's a lot more robust that way. Uh, the second thing is chain of custody. So that's really important for tracing a product through its supply chain. We've talked about this in other episodes as well. Uh, traceability is like a huge issue with conflict minerals. So if you want to hear more about that, you can go to that episode. But basically, it's just how you track whatever product you're, you're looking at throughout the supply chain. So you can make sure like, if I want to buy certified, sustainably managed paper, that actually like all of the products that went into the pulp for that paper was sustainably managed, that none, none of the stuff that got in there wasn't. Um, and so chain of custody is really important for traceability. And then the third thing is just the label. It's the thing that appears on the products. And those are all the elements of forest certification. <laughs> uh, today, there are two prominent 
eco-labels that compete with one another. Um, the first one is the Forest Stewardship Council. Uh, had you heard of that one before, Kyla? Yeah, yeah, I definitely know that one. Yeah, it's pretty famous. And the second one is called the Program for the Endorsement of Forest Certification, or PEFC. Had you heard of that one? Nope. <laughs> you probably wouldn't have because the way PEFC works is they actually certify bodies in different countries. So depending on where you are, the label that's associated with PEFC is going to be totally different, and it's probably not going to call itself PEFC, so you'd never know. In Canada, we actually have three sustainable forest eco-labels. Um, the first one is the Forest Stewardship Council. Um, or FSC. Uh, the second one is actually the Canadian Standards Association, or CSA, their Sustainable Forest Management Standard. So that one is PEFC linked, um, and it's uh, associated with an organization called the Canadian Standards Association. So you may just see CSA on it. And then the third one is the Sustainable Forestry Initiative. It is also PEFC linked, um, and it is a Canadian and American standard. So which one's the best? It can sometimes be really difficult to compare the effectiveness of certification schemes. Uh, it's something that academics struggle with all the time. Uh, but with forestry, there's a general consensus that, that FSC or the Forest Stewardship Council eco-label is the best, and that's because it has the most stringent standards. It has the most robust assessment mechanisms and because companies have actually been banned from using the eco-label for failing to live up to their standards. That's always a sign of a good eco-label if they're willing to decertify um, or to like not accept the certification of producers. Uh, in Canada, we've got some, a fair amount of certified sustainable forest uh, out there. We've got 168 million hectares that are certified. Um, and actually, Canada has 35% of the world's certified forest area. I'm going to make you guess a number again. <laughs> okay. Of Canada's forests, what percentage do you think are certified? 50%. No, it is only 11%, actually. What? Yeah, so it's still pretty low, but actually that is pretty high for eco-labels, which could be a knock against voluntary standards as an approach to dealing with sustainability, right? If you're only... In Canada, one of the places that is most likely to have certification because we've got environmentally conscious consumers, fairly strong uh, you know, legal regimes, you still only have 10% of the forests that are certified. Is that a success? I don't know. I don't think it is. <laughs> like, <laughs> look, if you're doing better than your neighbor, but your neighbor's bar is on the floor, you know, like nobody's doing well. We're just the best of the worst. What's the alternative, though? Like, if there's if it's difficult to get global agreement on stuff, at least something is happening through certification. As a consumer, you can sort of support that. But <laughs> I don't know. I want to talk a little bit about the history of the Forest Stewardship Council, though, because it's it is a little bit interesting. FSC it was what I'm going to call it from now on. It's just easier. It was founded in 1993 in Toronto. Canada. Oh, that's so recent. I thought, I don't know why I thought, I guess it's not that recent. <laughs> no, it's actually one of the older eco-labels, but, um, but still in like the arc of time is very recent. And can you guess like any of the stuff that was going on around that time that might have made the FSC happen? Like, do you know what was going on with the environmental movement at that time? 
Oh, it's probably something really big and obvious, but all I can think is like, oh, the USSR in 1991, like, dissolved. <laughs> and, and like, the Berlin Wall fell in 89. And then I was like, ah, my brother was born in 93. That's the only interesting thing I can think of. <laughs> that That's why it happened. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's basically that the environmental movement had been gaining a lot of steam over the 70s and 80s, right? Uh, so there was the 1992 Earth Summit, the first Earth Summit. It was held in Rio, um, and it was sort of the culmination of there had been a bunch of environmental activism. There was like, you know, ozone had been dealt with. Uh, had it been dealt with by then? Yes, it had. Um, and like there had been agreements on biodiversity. There's a whole bunch of stuff happening in the environmental space. So there was a lot of excitement at this Earth Summit, um, but ultimately no agreement emerged. Around the same time, you have the War in the Woods. Had you ever heard of that before? No. The War in the Woods, it's actually the largest mass arrest in Canadian history happened in the War of the Woods. Um, and it's in the early 90s. Basically, there's a bunch of protesters that are trying to block roads to the Clayoquot Sound um, to protest logging that was happening in old growth forests there. During those protests, more than 900 people were arrested. That and like other protest movements uh, and generally like the visibility of deforestation, it led to this growing consumer concern with illegal logging that was happening around like the late 1980s, the early 1990s. That led to a consumer boycott movement. Um, I wasn't able to find much about like the general boycott movement, but I did find an interesting story about one that was happening in Canada. Um, and it was a boycott of the Daishowa Paper Company. So it's a Japanese firm. I may be pronouncing it incorrectly. But basically, in 1988, the province of Alberta had granted uh, Daishowa logging rights on lands that were traditionally used and occupied by the Lubicon Cree Nation. The Lubicon Cree Nation, they called for a boycott. And then an organization out of Toronto uh, was formed called Friends of the Lubicon, um, and it amplified the boycott, and it became this really successful boycott movement. Over 4,000 retail outlets representing 47 different companies participating. Um, and it wasn't necessarily that companies wanted to do this. Like, one of the things that I was reading about is protesters in Toronto just, like, cycling through this one pizza company. They didn't say which one, but, like, all of the retail fronts being like, don't like, don't eat pizza from here because their pizza boxes are built off of like stealing treaty rights, basically. Oh, that's rad. It's pretty rad. Um, and the boycott ended up costing Daishawa an estimated $3.6 million. Daishawa didn't like this very much. And four years into this boycott, they sued Friends of the Lubicon um, for their boycott campaign. And EcoJustice, uh, which is sort of like an a legal environmental charity. They defended Friends of the Lubicon, and in 1998, the court concluded that their boycott was legal. And after the ruling, Daishawa actually just agreed not to log in the disputed areas. So it's an example of a boycott that was actually pretty successful. And I'm not sure whether this was the main boycott that um, I was listening to an interview with somebody that was involved with the FSC, and he was talking about these boycotts as the catalyst for it being formed. I'm not sure whether it was this boycott or whether it was like a, an agglomeration of other ones. Ultimately, it was this sort of like consumer boycott pressure that leads to 
deforestation and its connection to the paper industry getting high enough on the agenda that you get this eco-label that comes together. And it also comes together out of the failure of that Earth Summit that happened in 1992. The FSC is really interesting because it, in its structure, is multi a multi-stakeholder initiative. So it brings together business and like nonprofits um, and trade unions. And in some countries, there's actually a specific Indigenous chamber as well. Um, and they all have equal voting rights in deciding how the standard is certified. It's truly something that is not just business-led. A lot of times when you have these eco-labels, they're run by private businesses. The standards are set by businesses. A lot of the times, it's pretty cozy with industry. Uh, and the FSC certainly isn't immune to those kinds of criticisms, but it's got a much more robust governance mechanism that kind of shields it against that and has become, you know, it's become known as like a standard or um, a best practice. So the Marine Stewardship Council, you might recognize the similarities in the name, uh, but really sort of drew on the example of the FSC. FSC develops and maintains a global standard, and they have environmental, social, and economic criteria that they include in that standard. Over its lifetime, they now operate in 80 countries. They have 230 million hectares of certified forest, and they're doing pretty well as far as uh, certification programs go, although certainly there's a lot of uncertified forest as well. The PEFC is the other example. Um, it was founded a little bit later. It's basically a framework that recognizes different standards around the world. Um, and in Canada, I had mentioned there's the CSA standard, and then there's the Sustainable Forestry Initiative, or SFI. You should be more skeptical of SFI. Um, it was created in 1994 in the U.S. by the American Forest and Paper Association, and it was directly created as a response to FSC. So it was in explicitly intended to be more industry favorable. It's a little bit more flexible. It's a little bit cozier with industry. It seems as though it's become a little bit more robust over time, but still, if you have a choice between two standards, the FSC is the way to go. And I actually haven't seen a CSA standard in a while. Maybe I'm going to look for it for, <laughs> for a little bit to see if it still like exists. I don't know how prevalent it is. Okay, well, that was very informative. I learned a lot, and it wasn't as grim as I thought it would be. Like, I mean, some of those numbers are staggering, Kristen. 70% of like biodiversity loss or something like, ah, gosh, but I don't know. I feel like it's not a complete, it's completely hopeless as like the, the oceans episodes that we've done where it's like, oh my goodness. Like, I mean, I guess we're still in a lot of trouble. If we get rid of all of our forests, we can't breathe anymore. And we're not on trend to do very well by that. So everybody switch to reusable toilet paper and plant some more trees, just like gorilla plant trees, just like Plant a pine beetle in the face today. <laughs> <laughs> and I would ask our listeners, if you want to give yourselves like a substitute paper challenge like we did, then please do and let us know how it goes. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll catch you on the next episode. <laughs>